welcome back to this brand new episode of the Somerillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and the Tolkien maven, Trish Lambert. Uh, and we are very excited. Um, we're on, uh, this is episode five, I believe, and we're talking the Marathoder Thod today. Uh, lots of politics, right? people for the poor people that are asynchronously listening and they 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 turn on the podcast and dave is like giggling while he does the opening <laughs> yes. you know i mean that's isn't that sad i want them to feel like they're missing out we right we well, were joking know. around before he started and that's terrible so you know the cure for that you got to listen live that's, that's it. true that's right. listen to us that's live. true right <laughs> so, so politics this episode that's right. Yeah. Politics this episode, yeah. we're going to be looking at the uh, uh, the really I think this is this is kind of the the heart of that really complex Noldor Sindar, both like interpersonal and like political and intercultural kind of, uh, you know, drama of this season. So uh, these these two episodes are really pivotal for that. Plus, we've got lots of romance in this episode, too, as we're. Uh, yeah. Uh, what is that? A high, whatchamacallit factor? What is it for uh, romance? There's a movie factor, isn't there? That, like, you know, for chicks? I oh, can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, yeah somebody will remember. Yeah. But anyway, so it's like a high score for, yes. like, you know, women will like it. You know, <laughs> people, people are probably experiencing, like, very severe withdrawal on their, like, um, uh, uh, on their, like, sort of fantasy historical fantasy politics and romance yeah they've got no more game of thrones now oh yeah for so, those listening you know later on down the line we're right around the time that game of thrones ended so yeah, yeah. well that's true yeah we should be careful to place things in context so when people are listening to yeah. us four years from now they the the, the, <laughs> the episode hasn't gone stale but yes yeah, so we're right around the end of game of thrones people are going through withdrawal for those of you who are listening in real time if you're feeling that withdrawal this is the place to come. This is an excellent episode oh, for us yeah. to be working we'll, on. Yeah, exactly. We will deliver your politics and romance, and we take the fantasy elements seriously. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Rather than <clears throat> Gur Martin. Well, it wasn't even Gur Martin for the last season, I don't think. But anyway. Yeah, yeah he's he's free of blame now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I bet actually, you know, he's been, uh, you know, feeling kind of smug about the response to the end of the series. Actually. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yep. Anyway. Uh, yes. Aslan's compass asks if, asks if this is a kissing episode. Yes. Yes. This is definitely <laughs> a kissing episode. Uh, well, at least in one regard, we're going to have, we're going to have some mushiness, but I think no smooching yet uh, in the Galadriel and Celeborn. Uh uh, uh, relationship, but would it be uh, interesting if we actually find out that elves like rub noses or rub ears or something instead of kiss? I mean, you know, we shouldn't take it. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't take it for granted that they actually kiss, right? So you know. Anyway, that is a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. <laughs> oh, Gary's, Corey's thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> there I goes am. the eyebrow. But you're right. <laughs> you're right. I think we. I think we. Uh, we should probably not at this point be thinking about like you know the erotic gestures of elves yes right now but Not uh right now. yeah Maybe later. or a bonus episode marie let's add that as an episode the erotic <laughs> gestures of elves at the end of the season i'm not sure we want to do that actually <laughs> but <laughs> we'll, it would we'll be, see it would be rated e <laughs> 
No, it just wouldn't. For elves. For elves. For elves. Okay. All right. It's going to be a good episode today, oh, folks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, so uh, quick announcements of which there's really only one, and that is Mythmoot. It's we are a month away from Mythmoot, and so I'm in full Mythmoot anticipation mode, uh, and uh, it's really exciting. So, of course, we, we are down to the last week now. Next Friday is when registration is scheduled to close for live attendance at Mythmoot. So I hope if you'll be able to join us that you'll be able to uh, register within this next week so that you can come and join us. Really great crowd coming this year. Uh, excited to see folks. And um, of course, this year we also have the Mootcast option. For those of you who aren't able to make it to Virginia, you can still attend live every session and in fact get archived video recordings of all of the sessions, even all the ones that are going on at the same time uh, so that you don't have to choose anymore and you can hear everything. And of course, Mootcast is automatically included, like access to that recording archive is included with registration to Myth Moot, any kind of registration, like even if you only come for one day, you can get the, the Mootcast archive archive for the whole thing anyway and and yes ellen mootcast will be available asynchronously right absolutely it is well, available yeah it's archived isn't it it well um yes oh yes it's available asynchronously the the one kind of so the reason i paused the one proviso you can only sign up for mootcast up until the end of myth yeah, yeah. it's an attendance thing right. 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 So you can't come in like two years from now and be like, hey, can I like buy access to the recordings? No, we, we can't do that. But um, if you buy it before the end of this, the exactly. up event, through then you Sunday have the 30th. Exactly. Right. Through Sunday the 30th. So like if still like the middle of the afternoon while we're all hugging and saying goodbye to each other, you can still order the, the, the Mootcast awesome. and, and get access to the full uh, recording. God, you but, and I talked about this so long ago, but the time yeah. had not come yet. And this is really exciting. By the way, I don't know if this is good or bad. It might be bad, but I'm going to be there. So if that's a draw, but also might keep people from not coming. So I don't know. <laughs> no, it's one of my main draws this year. I'm really looking forward <laughs> to seeing you again there. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to kick back and relax and have a good time. Yep. My first myth mood, I can do that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's going to be great. So, um, so yes, Moodcast will definitely be, if you, if you sign up for Moodcast, you don't have to attend anything live. You can just, uh, you know, watch all the recordings. And if you have Moodcast, we're not going to make those unavailable at any point. Like you will have permanent access to the archive of videos for the rest of your life. Uh, but, uh, we just, we just won't be able to sell, uh, uh, access to it after the fact. Um, anyway, so that's how it's, uh, uh, that's how, that's what's going to happen. Uh, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be really fun. So, all right. Um, that's, uh, that's it. That's, oh wait, no, yeah, I know, like, I know there's another thing. There is another thing related to Mythmoot, and that is, uh, the preliminary schedule, uh, has been posted, so you can begin to see, like, with the, for the sessions and stuff, all of this is on the webpage, signumuniversity.org slash Mythmoot, uh, so you can get all of the information there. Um, all right, cool. Uh, so, and I was going to say this at the end, but actually I should say this at the beginning also to make sure that everybody notices and remembers uh, in case people have tuned out or fallen asleep or whatever by the end. Um, next week, So the, the scheduled next session 
uh, we're due for Friday, the 14th of June. Um, I'm going to be traveling on the 14th of June, so I'm not going to be able to do that, which means, as usual, we're going to need to bump it, bump it up or back. Um, and I think we're going to bump it up, actually. So we're going to plan to have the next session uh, next Friday on June 7th. Uh, so we'll have two weeks in a row of film film here coming up uh, and then we'll have a little bit of a gap, but um, we'll, we will be uh, doing film film again next week. So just to let you know. Okay. Uh, and uh, as I'll remind you again at the end, but I wanted to make sure to mention that at the beginning. Okay. So on to the business of the day, which is episodes five and six. So episode five, there's a lot going on. We talked a lot about the Marathon last time in our creative discussion section, uh, session, when we were talking about like what kinds of entertainments are going on and sort of doing some, uh, doing some, some work on <clears throat> Elvish culture and thinking about that. Um, so here's a, a list of potential stuff that could be happening here in um, the Marathon or Thod. Uh, let's look at the, the big picture, right? Turgon is hosting it uh, at Nevrast. So we have the establishment of Turgon's court. One of the most important elements for this, because of course, Turgon in film film time, as far as like actual time on screen, Turgon is going to be in Nevrest for like a heartbeat. Right? I know he's there for a while, but again, as far as the appearance on screen, we're not going to be in Nevrest very often. Um, I'm really excited uh, to have the Marath Adarthad in Turgon, Turgon's court in Nevrest so that we have lots of associations with it when we get to Tuor down the road, right? Uh, in several years, um, because when Tuor comes to, so we want to have when Tuor comes to Nevrast, uh, and finds the armor that, uh, Turgon has left for him at Olmo's instructions, um, we should have, we should remember that place from the Marathadarthad, right? This is the scene. It's like this episode is what we're going to have associations with when we get to the Tuor moment. So I want to be kind of thinking about that. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, that's what I'm, uh, uh, that's what I'm working on, uh, thinking about how we can prepare. And it's not like it's the whole point of this episode. Obviously there's a lot that's going on here for its own sake, but in the back of my mind, one of the things that I want to prepare for is, um, uh, is the, uh, the, the coming of Tuor uh, later on. So for instance, where, how do we want to handle? Okay, well, since I'm talking about that, let's talk about that right now. How do we want to handle the? Like, obviously, there's not going to be. It's not there already, right? The armor that he's going to eventually leave for Tuor. Um, where should it be, and what should be there? I mean, we we need to do. I think I feel like we need to do something to kind of draw attention to that location. We can't just have the armor in a spot that was empty before. Um, there should be some significance to the like physical place where Tuor finds his armor. And we need to establish that significance now in this episode. You see what I mean? Um, uh, so yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, Nick, exactly. The, the festivity, well, I don't know about most of the festivities because especially last time, I mean, I have to admit actually um, 
one of the things that I think reflecting back on our discussions from last time, last time I was thinking almost entirely of like outdoor activities, right? Um, I was, you know, we were talking about things like athletic competitions and, uh, and stuff like that. Um, but so I mean, a lot of that stuff obviously is outdoor stuff and there's going to be a great deal of things that are happening outside. Uh, but there definitely needs to be some indoor uh, stuff, especially like the high feast and stuff. So there does need to be a throne room. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I know that that's where it's stated, but again, like where, like what, what is the, what is the significant, not the significance of the room, but the significance of the specific location. Um, uh, so yeah. Um, just to start that off simply where is he going to put the armor in relationship to the throne? Should it like stand at the right hand side of the throne? Um, is there a way that we can draw attention to, you know, the, um, and what is the throne like? Exactly. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to be thinking about this. What kind of throne does Turgon have in Vinyamar? Probably not one forged from the swords of his enemies. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, would it be stone, like set in the wall? Seems like seems, that would probably be appropriate for given kind of the setting and and how the place was created. Is it, is it something that was there when he got there or did he build it? He built it. Okay. He built it. So what yeah, I'm trying... I, th- I think forged out of the stone. Forged out of the stone. That's my first, first mm-hmm. reaction, but, but don't take it seriously. Well, especially since, you know, when tour comes to the tour needs to be able to obviously see that it's a throne room, right? I mean, it, it has to, he has to know that he is in the throne room of the of the old king who lived here, right? Um, not necessarily knowing exactly what it is or who it is. Um, and so if it were not a stone throne, if it were, you know, a stone, a throne made of like precious metals and wood or something like that, then they'd have taken it with them, presumably, to Gondolin, right? Um, but if it's carved out of stone, uh, you know, and attached to the walls and floor, they're going to leave that behind. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's pretty, that's, that, that's pretty easy. Um, uh, Nick. Yeah. That's a great thought. That's the kind of thing that I'm, uh, that's kind of, the, that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. Right. Um, what if the throne room is open with a balcony view of the sea? Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to picture this scene clearly in my head and, but it's not just about, picturing it so that it looks cool, though that's also important. I'm thinking about the symbolism here, and in particular I'm thinking about the character of Turgon that we have been building. I want to make sure that we're consistent with what we are connecting with uh, with Turgon um, as we move forward. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's why, by the way, uh, I'm not just uh, 
I'm not only going by the description. I mean, I'm, I'm using the description that we get in Unfinished Tales. I know we get a detailed description of this in Unfinished Tales. But we are developing the character of Turgon in a particular way, uh, which is not alien to the way that Tolkien uh, depicted Turgon, but which is more detailed than what he gave us about Turgon um, and certain and different in some ways. Uh, and so I want to be thinking about our story and the, the, the ways in which we can evoke the things that we want to evoke in our story. Um, but again, that's why, that's why I mentioned the throne room and everything because uh, it's, uh, it's, it's um, based on that. And I want to think about the reason I say the hanging of the armor, I know in Unfinished Tales it's described as hanging above the throne. Um, and I like that, but I'm not sure about it. Um, I, 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 I'm not, I want to make sure it fits and it makes sense. And again, especially in the context of the Merith Adarthad and what we're describing happening in the Merith Adarthad. Right. If we could have some particular associations with it, the connection with the sea, Nick, like the direction you're thinking is exactly one of the kinds of things that I'm kind of thinking about. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Tony says he always imagines it at the right hand of the marble throne. I like it being at the right hand uh, because again, that's kind of where tour is going to end up. Right. So having, the positioning of the armor, symbolically speaking, having it be above the throne, um, it's visually nice, um, but symbolically, I don't like it all that much uh, because again, it seems to say something weird. Like it's the, it's he's not above the throne, right? Um, it's this is a gift from Olmo, but it's a gift from Turgon, too. Um, and Aslan's Compass, yeah, it's also, how would he get it down? Yeah, I mean, like, having, I mean, he'd have to climb up onto the, like, back of the throne to get it down. You could do that, but again, it's one of those things, uh, Aslan's Compass, exactly as you're suggesting, it's one of those things that I think works better in prose than it would work on screen. Um, I don't know. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the Noldor do like to work in stone. So having the, the throne be of stone seems, uh, seems fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> do they also leave a ladder? Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Um, well... See, no, Ellen, it's not there already. We're not going to put the armor there. Um, he, he, he won't have placed the... He'll only place the armor before he presumably only forged the armor after Olmo tells him to and gives him the measurements, right? And that's going to be significantly later. So there's no armor there now. That's the, that's the issue. That's the kind of the fun challenge, right? Is that um, we're going to have this... We need to establish this space, and the significance of this space. Um, Turgon is going to be... You know, we're going to have some kind of ceremony, right? Presumably. Um, this is going to be one of the places where we can show one of the first places, really, that we can show the High King in action, right? What it means to be the High King and how the High King interacts with other kings, right? So 
you know, having Fingolfin come and Turgon is there on his throne in his court and seeing the two of them interact as he sort of, there can be even some kind of ceremony, right? Uh, as he sort of officially installs Turgon and blesses Turgon's uh, reign here in Nevrast and everything. Um, you know, all of that, um, I think, uh, makes gives us an opportunity, actually, uh, to do that. But if we're going to do that kind of a ceremonial scene, some kind of actual ceremony, not just party, right, in the throne room, um, but some kind of actual ceremony, then the sort of the symbolic placement of things is actually really important, right? Um, So a good question, Ellen, you had raised this question. Uh, What direction does the throne face? Does it face east or west? Do we think mm. um, it could face? This is Turgon. It's got to face west, right? This is Mister. Yeah. I'm making a gold and silver yeah. tree to recall the trees of the. I'm going to go to Gondolin and make as close a facsimile as I can to Valinor. Yeah, uh, clearly it faces west, right? Um, would there? So it faces west, and then Nick having the kind of open. Uh, balcony thing, right? Um, uh, So having like the western wall of the throne room be open, right? So that you have the sea, you know, it opens out onto the sea um, would seem to work. Is there any way, but again, this this is Turgon we're talking about here. He would also be aware, wouldn't he? of their guilt that is his looking back towards the west has to be done in the knowledge that they're exiled right um right there's a it seems to me that the westward orientation of people like turgan has to be done either in a spirit of almost defiance Right. In the sense of like, I know that you've kicked us out and you've said that we're not welcome, but I'm like focused entirely on Valinor anyway, or of repentance. Right. Of penitence, I should say Um, that he. You know, repents of the crimes that led them to be exiled and that he is looking and hoping for reacceptance, right? And the mariners that he's going to send down uh, the river to the sea later on uh, is going is to be sort of a more active campaign, right, of seeking forgiveness, of seeking permission. Um, ooh, Aslan's, uh, Aslan's Compass, I like this. Uh, Aslan's Compass is pointing out uh, on the Twitch chat, um, there, should be, there should be humility, in Turgon's throne room. And I agree with that. Uh, yep. uh, so uh, she's particularly uh, suggesting uh, his throne should be small. Um, I, I, I like that. He should not have a grand and aggrandizing throne. And in particular, I think it shouldn't be very high, or right? it shouldn't be like up many steps on a high dais. It should be a relatively small, uh, it can be beautiful, right? But a relatively small stone seat uh, and one, facing facing the west um so yes that 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 image of like 
the relatively small chair facing the very large, like whole wall missing. Right. So, um, is, uh, could make for a really nice kind of dynamic, right. Where it's like him sort of opening himself up to the West. Right. And, uh, both looking out towards the West and sort of inviting, that's why, like, yeah, you get all the sea wind and everything coming in. The throne room is not going to be at all seasons the most pleasant place, right? Um, but that's that's okay. Um, I I I kind of I kind of like all of that. Um, Hakan is suggesting uh, a sunset. Yeah, we we could do a sunset um, for some important scenes here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, well, it's a good question. It's a good question, Ellen. Ellen is asking basically how much of Turgon's attitude toward... Like, he, he certainly looks back to the West with regret, but how much remorse does he look back with? I think it's a really good question. Um, for Turgon, obviously, the defining event right, of recent history is the death of his wife. You know, he lost his wife in the crossing of the Helcaraxa. Um, remember that in episode, in season three, and you guys will remind me if I'm not remembering this correctly, when we had the discussion among the people of Fingolfin and Finarfin who remained after the burning of the ships, right, when they realized they've been betrayed, um, we had their discussion, like their, their decision, Let's cross the Helcaraxa, right? And we were talking about the different reasons why they would cross the Helcaraxa. And if I remember correctly, the um, the voice that we gave to Turgon in that debate was one of was a more prophetic one, right? Where he was he had um, the sense, right? He had the conviction that it was important for them to do, like they had a role to play in Middle Earth, like that they needed to be there. He was not motivated by, he was not part of the, yeah, let's go after Thanor and string him up crowd. Um, he wasn't part of the, like, I'm super ambitious and I want uh, to get my kingdom already, even if I have to walk to get there crowd. Um, and you know, <clears throat> uh, Angrod being one of the spokesman of the first one, Galadriel being the spokesman of the second group. Um, he was um, uh, okay. Oh, Ellen, right. We had Elenway persuading Turgon to cross. Right, Marie's reminding me too. She saw hope for the future in Beleriand. Right. So, yeah, we had Elenway and Turgon have a, pri a private conversation about that as well. Yes, good. See, I was forgetting that. So, um. So what's his attitude towards that now? What's now that Elenway's dead? Clearly, the role that he at least has to play in um, uh, in Middle Earth is not panning out like he expected, right? Because his, you know, they they um, they crossed. Elenway was one of the ones supporting the crossing, and she was killed in the crossing. So clearly he's got to have mixed feelings about that. Right. Um, so his longing for the West, his like, I'm going to recreate the blessed realm to the greatest of my ability here in middle earth impulse is in part. What, um, his grief processing that his like, 
an expression of I wish I hadn't crossed the Helcaraxa, right? I should have, like, Elenwyn, I should have gone back to Valinor. Uh, um, but see, I got to be careful because grief and mourning among the elves, not the same as among humans, right? So he hasn't lost Elenway in the same way that a human would have lost his spouse under those similar circumstances. Um, he would still experience grief, obviously, but as we talked about when we discussed the kinslaying, grief among the elves is not exactly the same um, as grief among the... He's Basically, he would associate Middle-earth with sadness. Now, like, his whole Middle-earth career, the whole, like, whatever it is, whatever role he has to play in the future of Middle-earth and in the progress of Middle-earth is... Um, is now being done without her and in separation from her. And although he may, you know, be confident that he is eventually going to be reunited with her, that is not how he planned it, right? He did not plan to play out this role in Middle-earth on his own. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess, um, I, guess the, I guess the grief is more of a... <clears throat> it's less a I'll never see you again type grief and more of a um, it's kind of a in the moment like I you know like the my experience of this moment isn't what I thought it would be right exactly more 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 focused on kind of the 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 journey of getting there as opposed to the destination I guess exactly okay but here's a quick question mm-hmm. and this is uh, uh, thinking about this in conjunction Ellen with uh, your comment there. Do the exiles wonder whether or not there's going to be any, like, are they going to, what's going to happen to them when they're killed now that they've been exiled? Are there going to be longer term consequences of that? I mean, surely there's going to be something that needs to happen, you know, purgatorially speaking, but like, could they be in doubt or dread lest they actually not go back to the halls of Mandos, whether something else happened to them. Um, you know, if their spirits are banished as their bodies have been banished, you know, like if that, if they're, you know, will their fans not be welcomed back? Will they not go to the halls of Mandos in the normal way? You know, will they become, um, yeah, no, you're right, Nick. Mandos does promise that their spirits will return to him. So I guess Mandos kind of spoiled that one, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but so their dread would be not less they don't go to Mandos, but not knowing what's going to happen to them when they do go to Mandos. Um, so Turgon could have some doubts about what's going to happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, but again, as I say, it's not, it's not the same as it's. The, the dynamics certainly are not the same as with mortals. Um, and when I say the dynamics there, I just mean like the entire framework, like the, it is impossible for death, even in middle earth to mean the same thing for the elves as it does for humans. Right. Because humans begin with the fundamental association that death means departure. Death means separation. Um, some kind of like permanent separation um, that, when somebody you love dies, you have lost them. Um, that's the, the, whereas elves, they don't have that framework. Like death is not departure. Um, death is not departure from middle earth, right? Death or death, not departure from Arda. I mean, um, 
that's not even what they associate death with. Like they would just, they would think it as a process, they would think about it. They would frame it completely differently. Um, death is not an end. There's no, there's no association of finality with death because that's not how they're structured. That's not how they're set up. That's not how their relationship with Arda works. Um, so, uh, but I mean, but again, there is the, the separation is 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 nevertheless real, uh, even if temporary, even if time, you know, might not feel the same way to an elf as it does to a human. You know, being separated uh, for millennia is still kind of noticeable. And uh, what's more, as we said, you know. What happens to you in the halls of Mandos is not necessarily desirable, and even when elves do return, they're changed. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, okay. So, Turgon's frame of mind, then. Back to Turgon's frame of mind. What would he be thinking? There'd be a temptation to bitterness. The kind of bitterness of like, I expected one thing and I've received something very different and very much worse. Right. I was ready for hardship. I was ready for difficulty. Um, you know, when Alenwe and I came to Middle Earth and like that, the role we were meant to fulfill would be hard, even painful, right? We were prepared for that, but that the role that was set for me would be to to lose her and be on my own and to, you know, to raise our daughter myself, that's not what he was thinking, right? This is not what he signed up for. Um, and his longing, so his longing for the West, which is clear in all of his works, has to be, it seems... Do you think there's a kind of, well, no, not, not denial. That's not exactly what I mean. This sort of, uh, I'd always thought about, you know, the, the sort of Valinorian elements in Gondolin, especially to be a kind of nostalgia, right? A kind of homage, right? Like, uh, you know, I want to, um, do honor to, you know, back home and recreate home here as much as I can in honor of the home that, you know, in memory and longing for the home that I have lost. Um, but I wonder if there, if we might not see a, 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 an additional or a different dynamic there as well, like a kind of alternative, like a, 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 an almost, but not quite denial. Um, Yeah, Hakan says it's a way to ease the pain because you've got to think that, um, well, I don't exactly mean pretending he isn't in exile, but if in his heart what Turgon wishes most, um, like, you know, that moment when uh, Denethor, with cruel and crushing honesty, uh, admits to Faramir that he wished that Faramir had gone instead of Boromir so that Faramir had died and, and not Boromir, right? That, like, horrible... Like, Faramir already pretty much knows that that's true, but, like, 
Denethor's confirmation of it is really, you know, this terrible moment, right? But it's a it's this moment of uh, horrible and crushing honesty by Denethor, right? If Turgon had a similar moment of crushing honesty about what he wanted, what he wishes for, would what he wishes for be like that he had never come to, that he had just gone back with Elenwe to Valinor with Finarfin, right, to seek for forgiveness there? Um, and therefore, would that, like, that sort of honest truth, which I think maybe he doesn't really express, uh, be one of the main things that's therefore informing him um, as he's doing these, you know, so that Gondolin becomes this, like, alternative Valinor, psychologically speaking, right? Um, His attempt not to bring his home to Middle-earth, but, like, retreat from Middle-earth... Because see this the reason you see the reason that I'm thinking this right because it informs his isolationism then right I'm going to shut myself away from Middle Earth and pretend I'm going to, I'm going to I'm going to create this like little fantasy blessed realm right um, and I'm not saying that he begins with that I'm saying that that element is something that can become more and more pronounced as he's kind of slipping downhill. Uh, in you know, morally speaking, right? You know, um, spiritually speaking, later on, um, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that it's conscious, and it's certainly not explicit at the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you guys are seeing what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, Marie says it's a Valinor substitute uh, for those who go to Gondolin. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And one of the reasons why they can convince themselves that it's enough. Right. It's fine. They don't need um, anything. Right. They don't need they can just when they get there to Gondolin, they can live in bliss in their own little isolated bubble. And, uh, you know, evil can't touch them because evil does not enter that valley. And uh, see what I did there. And they um, uh, and and they don't need Valinor. Right. Because they've got uh, they've got they've got Gondolin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly, Ellen. So when he gets the so, so when he's presented with the choice, right, the choice to leave Gondolin and and enter the war, um, even with the promise that if he does, good things will happen, right? Not for him, probably personally, but like for the elves of Beleriand, um, he won't. He doesn't do it. Um, and we'll get to that, like exactly what the message of Olmo is, uh, how, which message of Olmo do we want to send to Turgon? The message of the published Silmarillion or the message of, uh, of, you know, the book of lost tales or, you know, I, we, we, we can, that's a discussion for another year, but, um, okay. So thinking about Turgon, therefore in Vinyamar, uh, means we have to think about Turgon, um, we have to think about Turgon in the very early stages of this. So his, his grief for his wife is still very fresh uh, when he builds Vinyamar. Um, is there a statue of her in the throne room? I would think yes. Is she facing towards or away from the sea? Hmm. How does she look? Happy? 
joyful, sad? Is he commemorating her happiness? Wistful. Is he wistful? Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Ellen was just asking the same question. Is he going to have a painting or carving of her, uh, you know, like to the left of the throne? See, Ellen, I love that idea. If we have the throne and the statue of Elenway next to him, right, then the armor can be on the other side. Like it can complement the statue, right? So that you have, oh, that's perfect. Love that, right? The statue of Elenway and Tuor's armor. Um, oh, so we've got like looking backwards and looking forwards. Oh, no, that that's it. That's it. That's perfect. Absolutely yeah, I love like that. that a lot. Yeah, that's yeah, good. yeah. Oh, perfect, perfect, perfect. Yes. Because um, in doing that, in telling him not only like the specs for the armor, but Olmo will tell him where to put it, right? Um, and in doing so, he's sending a message to Turgon himself. Right. Uh, he wants Turgon to understand the symbolism of that placement. Right. Uh, to to to. Oh, yeah. No, that's 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 very good. I like that a lot. Um, OK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Statue. It would be a statue. Right. Could be a painting. But I think statue is better. Statue is better, especially if we're going to have the armor. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Oh, Ellen, beautiful. No, oh, that's great. That's even better. No, this is perfect. So Turgon's throne, right? Turgon sits in his uh, modest, humble throne facing the west. Elenwe stands on his left um, and Idril stands on his right. And in Idril's spot, the place where Idril used to stand, is that's where Tuor's armor uh, is going to be placed. So we have the juxtaposition of Idril and Tuor in the placement of the armor. So again, we have the we have the foreshadowing of their of their joining, right? Um, as well as the the oh yeah no that's really good like that a lot. Um, and Ellen, great question. How does Idril feel about the memorial uh, to her mom? Um, does she like it? Is she? Um, uh, is she, uh, um, is she sad by it? Is she creeped out by it? I would think she'd like it and she would talk to it from time to time. One of the things that I think we definitely want to show is Idril carrying on her mother's tradition for wisdom and insight. Right. Um, after all, of course, it's going to be Idril who is going to be the brains behind the escape from Gondolin. Right. It is her wisdom and foresight that is going to lead very directly to anybody surviving the disaster of Gondolin. Um, yeah. Yeah. And good. Hakan points out, remember that she almost died at the same time. Right. So um, uh, the memory of her mother's death would be doubly scarring. Um, and in that circumstance, almost that almost has to be some survivor's guilt there too, right? I was just going to say that. I was just yeah. going to say that, that she would have survivor's guilt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, therefore, the sight of her mother's statue should fill her with sadness, right? Like, a survivor's guilt kind of sadness. Like, you know, it's a reminder that her mom died and she didn't. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, there might be a character arc there where she moves through that in some way. Yeah. Just an idea for the script writers. Yep. Um, certainly when we're doing, I think it's a season five question. We can come back because in season five, we need to establish at the beginning of the Arathel story, we need to establish some inside Gondolin time. Right. Um, so Idril, Idril and Arathel, I think should be close. Uh, and that would give us plenty of opportunity to show how Idril is coping right now. You know, now, now that we will have the, the adult Idril, right. We still have juvenile Idril, don't we? Is Idril still played by a girl here? I'm forgetting. No, she's, a, she's an adult now. Okay, great. Great. Um, uh, okay, great. All right. Um, so we have adult Idril already. Anyway, that's fine. Um, ah, oh, Ellen, that's another really great thought. Um, She's pointing out that the uh, we have to make sure not to make the um, statue of Elenway too freestanding, or Turgon would certainly take it with him. Um, it should be it should be a relief carved into or out of the wall. Um, I would think emerging from the wall, but still largely connected with the wall. So he'd leave it, um, uh, and of course we can have when we show the departure uh, of the soon to be Gondolindrim out of Nevrast. Um, we clearly are going to need a poignant scene, right? Where Turgon is saying goodbye to Elenway, right? To his statue of Elenway there. Um, he can commission one in Gondolin, but I wonder if he will. It's it's going to be different, right? It's going to be different. How, but wait, did we decide how he's depicted Elenway? Um, is he, so he's, she's facing the West because she's, she's to the side of his throne, Right. Um, though she's going to be set back from it a little bit. Um, uh, how how is she gesturing? Is she looking down? Is she looking out to see? He would show her. He would want to show. Is she looking up, perhaps, to sort of symbolize her wisdom and foresight, right? To kind of capture that, um, she could be looking aside at him so that he can make eye contact with her every time he looks up, which is a little creepy. Uh, but that could happen. Um, she could be looking down as if in sadness, but I don't think he would show her looking sad. I mean, he would be sad, but I would think his impulse would be to capture her greatness, right? Um, I think she'd be looking just forward, straight ahead, like onward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Nick says, uh, looking out to sea would seem out of character since we depicted her as wanting to go to Middle-earth. Yes, though Nick, having his depiction of Elenway staring back west across the sea would be, or could be, right, a kind of at least subliminal, if not... Uh, super liminal uh, uh, expression of his own like wistful longing for that 
not the return to Valinor, but the like do over in Valinor, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, but yes, I think that her standing with her hands by her sides, or maybe her one hand up, not quite in like the full teaching gesture, you know, uh, from medieval sculpture, but or, or you know from medieval iconography, but you know, in like a you know a kind of not a reaching out gesture, but a kind of, you know. Well, if it's a relief from the wall, I would imagine you wouldn't really have an appendage coming out, would it? She'd be more like having her hand over her heart or something like that. Well, I, I wasn't thinking Maybe necessarily holding, like a, a, full, a full relief. Uh, I'm think, I'm, okay. Myself, I think I'm picturing a kind of like a statue emerging from the wall, right? It should be connected to the wall. Um, but... Uh, but it wouldn't just because if you think about it, if you're sitting in a throne, especially if your throne is set back against the wall and the statue is like that, she'd be like he'd be looking up at her ribs every time he'd turn to the side. Right. Um, so it would make a certain amount of sense to have her statue set back. But if she's a relief in the wall, then he'd have to crane all the way around to look at the wall. Right. So I'm kind of thinking of. A statue, but it's a statue sort of emerging from the wall. So, like, the back half of it is connected to the wall. So she set back, um, uh, but but she is sort of a 3D statue coming out of the wall. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, ooh, Nick is suggesting maybe she has her hand out, like, as if her hand out to, to hold Turgon's hand. Um, which does mean he could reach out and hold her hand from the throne. But again, maybe a little too, you know, that's a little creepy, little creepy. Exactly. It would be, you know, we don't want to make, uh, we don't want to make, uh, Turgon look too, um, uh, necrophiliac here. She could have her hand on the back of his throne. I kind of like that. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. What about something that. that could be replenished like a ewer or a vase or something to where once a year, you know, maybe there's some tradition where something gets put, you know, flowers or I don't even know what it would be. But in other words, there's like there's a tradition in mm-hmm. Gondolin that she's honored once a year in some way. Anyway, that just popped into my head. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. We'll have to think about this. Um, we'll have to think about this in connection with uh, um, Gondolin. When we get to Gondolin, uh, I think we're really not going to do the details of Gondolin of like what life is like in Gondolin until the beginning of season five. But when we get there, we'll think about this. I'm kind of thinking one of the great things with Targon's character is the move enables us to show shift in character. So Ellen, coming back to a point you were making before Ellen was pointing out that of course, Turgon is proud. Like he won't abandon the work of his own hands. Um, so that seems at odds with what I was saying about humility in Turgon's court. To, and but and you're right. But see here, I think we have an opportunity to show that right, turning inward in the way that he is, separating himself, wanting to basically kind of detach from reality and create this sort of world of enchantment, this like little fantasy world in which like he is back in, uh, you know, like let's pretend we never left Valinor, right? Um, that. Uh, the way that that's kind of him folding back on himself there, his own mind folding back in on itself, and therefore, by the way, very pointedly failing in what um, uh, 
Elenway had seen, right, in what Elenway wanted uh, for them, right, for Turgon. But anyway, um, that he would grow in pride over the course, you know, over the course of, of centuries doing that, um, it would, um, that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, so, uh, you mean pride in the, in the, in the, in the destructive sense? Pride, well, right? yeah, yeah, certainly. So anyway, which is an say- interesting parallel, yeah. you know, to see them both kind of doing something like that, you yes. know, that they're char- that they actually develop that direction. Is yes. Yes, exactly. So I'm thinking, you know, I, I when I talk about him being humble, I, you know, I, I, it's not that I think we should show, you know, like Turgon is the one who always like dresses in very plain clothes and doesn't draw any attention to himself. I'm not, I'm not saying that. It's not, um, it's not that he is countercultural in that way, but I think that where he starts off here in Vinyamar is he's fairly low. He's in a fairly low place emotionally, certainly. Um, and I think that there has to be a fair amount of self-doubt that is involved in his regret, right? His regretting the decision across the Helcaraxa. Um, and I would think that he would for now be uh, in a, not necessarily a repentant frame of mind. I think that would be too far for Turgon at this point. Um, but I th- what I am thinking is that um, her, his shift to Gondolin, like his throne room in Gondolin should be quite different and um, should be, in fact, modeled after the throne room of Finway uh, in Tyrion, right? So um, the difference, I think, between the two can be pretty stark and can be a good visual cue of the path that Turgon is walking, right? Um, exactly, Ellen, you and I, were, you're thinking the same thing. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, yeah, Ellen, I think that, that his interaction with Olmo can in fact be a thing, which in, in that way kind of, uh, triggers his pride in some ways, almost perversely actually in the, at the end of the day, but yeah. Okay. So, uh, I love it when we get a chance to, or when we make a chance by wild digression to uh, really dig into the mentality of one of our very many characters here. Um, and it's worth thinking about for lots of reasons. I think we've done a lot of, we've made, this is exactly the kind of discussion I wanted to have when I was pushing for details about Turgon's throne room. See how important that is and how much we can convey and how much we can articulate by, uh, by thinking through all this stuff. And you're absolutely right, Marie. Turgon is very worth investing in uh, because he's going to be a very important character uh, for us. And we want, we certainly want Turgon's fall at the end to be very significant. Um, And his decision uh, the arrival of Tuor at Gondolin needs to be a very, very important moment uh, and to feel very important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, very good. Um, so, so we have Turgon's court and we can imagine a um, we can imagine a ceremony of sorts, right? I know that their realms were established in um, 
that their realms were established in the previous episode. But uh, yeah, I mean, yes, like obviously he's built Vinyamar, right? Like he'd taken his time to construct it. Uh, but I don't see any reason why this couldn't be like the first official visit of Fingolfin there, right? You know, that there would be this kind of blessing there, you know, has he done the rounds already? I don't know, but we didn't show him doing it anyway. Um, but I, and I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about even if there's already been some kind of investiture or something, however it is exactly they do that, um, I, I'm thinking of, politically speaking, the function of the Marathadarthad, right? Um Yes, they're wanting to all join together. They're wanting to, this is to be a, 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 a celebration, not only a celebration, but hopefully an enactment, right, of, uh, of peace and of reconciliation and of, uh, you know, concord among everybody. Um, but there also needs to be, I mean, like, you're in the room of one of the kings of the Noldor who has laid claim to this whole land, like, that's kind of an elephant in the room in a sense, right? I would think that they would actually talk about that. Having That's why I like incorporating some kind of official ceremonial, right? Um, at the very least, like Turgon's throne room, like his city of Vinyamar can now be complete. Um, that gives us an opportunity to show progress, right? How uh, these things haven't popped up overnight and to give a sense of time passing. Um, so... Um, yeah, yeah, good, exactly. Marie says it's like when a bishop establishes a new cathedral. It's already built, but now you're making it official for its use. That's exactly the kind of ceremony that I'm thinking. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, Ellen, exactly. I wasn't, when I said reconciliation, I wasn't translating, but I get talking about our themes, right? Um, yeah, the Feast of Reuniting, of course, uh, 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 technically. But again, that's, you know, us all joining together. But also worked into that an acknowledgement of here's how things are going to be, right? That's got to be involved. Um, here we are, Noldor here, and we're, uh, golly, kind of claiming this land, right? Uh, uh, Turgon is going to act like he's the king around here. And you're invited to stay, you know, oh, Sindar cousins of ours, right? Um, but again, like... Let's be clear about how things are going to be <laughs> as well, right? It's not to say that all Noldor are going to rule all Sindar, um, but uh, if you do come to live here, keep in mind, Targon is king. Uh, and that, of course, goes for all of the different realms of the Noldor. So I, I think that that's got to be, it might seem to be in a sense to um, to be kind of outside of the... Uh, theme even contrary to the theme of reuniting, right, of reconciliation. But um, it's, um, I, I feel like something that has to be acknowledged, something that has to be, uh, and and something that can be embraced by the Sindar themselves, right? Um, because this is one thing that I think is is, we certainly don't want to show the Noldor as simply imperialist, right? And one of the things that the Sindar, one reaction that I would want to encourage um, among the among the Sindar, right, is their reaction to the Noldor coming and establishing kingdoms should not be, oh, good, like here are these, you know, carpetbaggers coming into to Beleriand. Rather, they their reaction should be, 
Hooray! Now it's safe to live outside of Doriath. That's great. Right, exactly. As Aslan's says, compass says, oh, look, people with better weapons. This is cool. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, they, right, and they don't have, yeah. they don't really have, like, there's no notion, um, at least at this point in, uh, in Middle Earth history, there's, there's no notion of like sort of, you know, I guess uh, imperialism or colonizers or anything right. like that. There, there would be no reason to be suspicious, right? No, no. Uh, and certainly the concept of like, you know, enslavement or oppression, like by elves, you know, of elves, by elves, like that's not going to be on anybody's radar screen. Um, uh yeah, yeah. And that's, I think it's an important thing for us to keep in mind. There, it's another one of those times when it's going to look different um, to the viewers than it's going to look to the people on screen, right? To the characters within the story. Viewers on screen are going to see this, like, ah, emissaries of a culturally advanced society coming to the land where where people's technology is comparatively primitive and establishing kingdoms where they establish themselves as the rulers over the natives. We've heard this story before, right? We know exactly how this goes, and there's going to be tons, obviously, of associations with that kind of thing. Well, the elves have not heard that story before. That has never happened, uh, and it's never even been on the table. The only thing that they have is that is the only basis that they have. The only experience that they have is with the horror that's coming out of the North, uh, right? The werewolves and the orc armies and everything else. Uh, and the, you know, the, the monsters and things. Um, uh, so um, they are not going to, they're not going to have that association at all. Um, again, like we, we've one of that's, that's one of the reasons well, let me say this a different way. This is the payoff for one of the decisions I was urging before about how I was saying there's no Sindar living up in the north. Um, you know, not having an indigenous, uh, 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 like, um, population of Sindar up, you know, around Mithrim and everything um, when the Noldor arrive. One of the payoffs for this is if we if we keep the Sindar in previous ages in Doriath, especially like they, they used to wander more. Right. But of course, especially ever since the invasions uh, that were happening back in season three, they've been all gathered inside the girdle, right. For protection against Morgoth, the girdle of Melian was their only defense. Now they see, um, uh, they see that there's, um, uh, there's, more, there's another option, right? I mean, like the the protection by the Noldor can be like, you know, it's not like the Girdle of Melian. It's of a very different thing, but it's like a second layer of protection, right? And now, so that now they can come. So the freedom to return to places where they used to live, right? Some of them did used to live in Nevrast, and now they can go back because it's not just full of werewolves anymore. Now it's full of uh, now it's full of Noldor who are fighting off the 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 werewolves and that's great. Now we can join together uh, and uh, live in peace once more in the places that we, now we can explore other places. Hey, I know let's go up and live around Mithrim. I hear it's fun up there, right? Let's, let's go and explore there. Cause now we can. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that this can be, I think uh, a way that if we can convey that 
so because I really want to avoid associations and that they're very hard to escape. But I want to av- I want to avoid any conception that this is just purely imperialism uh, on the Noldor part. Um, I think that that's really important. Um, yeah, yeah. No, Marie, I think it's an important balance. The Noldor and Sindar are naive to the concept of imperialism, um, but the Noldor are very clear about these realms being theirs. Yes, yes, they are. They are. They are ruling. And again, I think that the Sindar who um, um, who are coming in are um, the the Sindar who are coming in are very happy to be ruled, right? Very happy to be uh, protected, very happy to work with them to protect the realm. Besides which, you know, we remember back to our discussions that we've had on the elvish nature of kingship, right? Kingship, not so much of a top-down thing uh, in elvish culture uh, as, you know, I think it is or comes to be in human culture, not quite so... Um, Less dictating that goes on, uh, I think, among Elvish kings. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, now, Nick, I, you're absolutely right. I think that, uh, you know, when this airs, there will be criticisms that we're ignoring the, act- the actual experience of, uh, of, of real colonialism, that we're creating this, like, theoretically ideal colonialism, which would seem to support the entire colonial system. Yeah, no, I, I I can hear those criticisms already running as well, right? But the answer to that is very simple. Um, hey, everybody, remember, we're imagining here, and what we're imagining is what a colonial situation would look like in this kind of situation, right? What if they didn't have these kinds of motivations? What if this wasn't happening? And the point is not to avoid it, right? Not to like, we're going to create, you know, this happy world in which imperialism is friendly and cheerful, right? That's not the point. The point, we're going to get there, right? We're going to get uh, to real and horrible uh, kinds of imperialism. We're certainly going to get there by the Numenorians, if no, if, if no time sooner. Um, we're going to get yeah, there. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a, that, that would be a specious that would be a specious um, uh, criticism because because even with the elves, it won't even continue to be true very long. Right. Exactly. You know exactly. I mean? um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We're and because Ellen, you're right. Their ambition is a thing, and we're going to see varying degrees. Some of the some of the lands will be less happy than others and less benevolent than others. Um, no, the point of all of this, like the point, the one of the. One of the things that we established from season one of the Silm Film Project, we want to show how the falls happen, right? We, we want to, and, and in order to be able to understand, in order to be able to appreciate the extent to which, um, you know, enslaving and, uh, and destructive imperialism uh, is, a, is, a, is an abomination, you need to understand, like, where it is before it falls, right? That's the whole point. Um, we have this model so that when we get to the other model, uh, it looks, um, uh, it looks, it looks like it should look right. We can really, uh, we can really show it and understand it better. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's, that's exactly, uh, and, and, and we're going to have, and of course, yes, behind all of this, Ellen, and that's the, that's the delightful tension of the Marathadarthad. Right. 
getting back to the Marathotothod, which we're supposed to be talking about, um, <laughs> the delightful tension here is that we have all, it's, it's all happy, happy, joy, joy, right? Everybody's happy. Everybody, the Sindar are celebrating, hooray. Like, you know, they're running around like the, the winged monkeys at the end of, uh, uh, of the Wizard of Oz, right? You know, like we, now the Wicked Witch is dead right now. We can finally celebrate and be ourselves and uh, return to our lands and everything. And this is great. The Noldor are fantastic. We love you guys. This is wonderful. So happy to see you guys again. What a benefit to us. And we can benefit you and all live happily ever after. And the Noldor are like, yeah, and here we are setting up our realms. And it's kind of awesome having realms. Not going to lie about that. But we're going to do good and we're going to fight Morgoth. And you guys are going to help us. And this is going to be great. And all through the whole time, there's the kinslaying, right? And the knowledge that these are the the very people, right? These are the the the, the relatives of the very people whose, uh, you know, that the 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 blood relatives of the folks that they slew are there with them in the Marathatarthad, um, and they're hiding it, uh, and they're lying to them the whole time, um, at least seriously withholding information. So that's the that's the the tension that is at the core of the Marathatarthad, and I think that has to be at the core of this episode in particular, right? So when we get to the drama of this episode, that is uh, Sauron and Thur and Gwethil, they are going to figure it out. Now, remind me, because it was like weeks ago that we talked about episodes three and four, Sauron and Thurin Gwethel figured it out, right? They know the truth about the kinslaying. Thurin Gwethel, we had Thurin Gwethel peeping in windows, didn't we? Hearing people yes. talking about it. Yes, we did. Right, we did. Yeah, because she goes back and reports. Um, right. Okay. I was pretty sure that we did. So Sauron and Thurin Gwethel come to the Merith Adarthad with the knowledge of the kinslaying, and they are super conscious of the tension here and of the potential to undermine this. So, I mean, they're looking around and they're seeing this and they're like, okay, this is bad. Right. Um, you know, this kind of peace and harmony, um, this kind of peace and harmony, uh, for the, um, uh, you know, for the elves, that's, that's not, uh, that's, that's not okay. Right. We want to, we want to, we want to mess this up. Um, and they have the weapon, right to hand, right? The truth. And, and it's the truth, right? They don't even have to spread lies. They just have to spread the truth actually, which puts Sauron and throwing Gwethel in an interesting position. Um, right. Okay. Marie, thanks for reminding me. We had her over here enough to figure out the basic nature of the secret, uh, being, being hidden. Um, exactly. So Sauron and throwing Gwethel know the truth or enough of the truth to go on. Right. Um, they know th- about the dark secret. They know what the dark secret is generally about. Um, none of the Sindar know. None of the Sindar even suspect because we're still at the very early stages of that. So recall we had said, I think I'm recalling me telling people to remember is pretty ironic. Um, but uh, I believe I'm recalling correctly. We said that at this early stage, we're still at the so the Sindar are still at the. We're not suspicious. They won't talk about what happened, but we're not suspicious because it's still a, like the grief is too near for words thing. Right. So like they obviously have had a, a heck of a time and really bad things have happened to them. And we want to really understand. And in fact, being that this is in Turgon's court and they would be having some of these conversations like under the shadow of the statue of Elenway, Right. It's easy enough to understand. Like, you know, you're a, a, a well-intentioned Cinderin person. 
and you're being like, well, yeah, naturally, like this, this must have been what they must have gone. I can't even imagine what they must have gone through. Right. So uh, this is horrible and I won't pry. Right. There's something there's 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 a there's a darkness. There is a grief that lies upon them. Um, but we shouldn't uh, uh, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't talk about that. Um, we shouldn't ask them. So the concealment is happening, but the concealment is easy to this point. Um, at some point, it would have gotten hard on its own. But Sauron is the one who's going to start making it hard. Right. He's going to he's going to uh, uh, he and Thorin Gwethel are going to stir up the pot. So they disguise themselves. What exactly do they do? And they're not going to be super obvious about it. Right. Um, one of the things, of course, that they could do really interestingly. Would be disguising themselves as Noldor and like being extra like clumsy and suspicious about deflecting uh, deflecting. Um, uh, questions and things. Um, we have to be careful because it's um, it's not. I mean, obviously they're not. You know, we can't have Sauron and throwing Grethel standing up on a plinth and being like, "They killed your relatives. They killed them." <laughs> you know. Uh, so that's um, you know. That's well, not what, okay. I, wouldn't we see an echo of how Melkor was in Valinor the first time he was let go? Um, you know how yeah, he yeah no exactly discord very yeah, this, subtly the sowing of discord and the sowing but the sowing of discord here is it's a different dynamic right than it was so with with right. Melkor it is in new in I almost said Numenor in Valinor um, it was about like leading them to first think very highly of themselves and then to like begin to sow seeds of doubt against the, against the Valar. I guess we can kind of parallel that. Um, You know what I really like? So Maria's talking about them playing both sides. Um, uh, I really like the, the idea Marie of uh, like showing a Sindar and a Noldor in conversation. Um, and they're having like a sort of an increasingly awkward conversation. And um, the, um, and others are overhearing them and getting uneasy. Right. And then it turns out that like both of the per- people in the conversation, like one was Sauron and one was Thor and Gwethel. And like they'd staged the entire, both halves of the conversation. Um, I think that that would be really, I think that that would be really fun. Um, now, Nick asks the excellent question. <laughs> he says it begs the question: Why don't they just stand on a plinth and yell? <laughs> they killed. They killed everybody. They killed your relatives. Wouldn't that be easier? <sighs> the only argument that I can see for why that wouldn't be easier is that people wouldn't believe it. That they wouldn't be. Uh, they wouldn't be ready to know that yet. Um, yeah. Um and I Yeah, it it would sound crazy exactly. Like the person would just sound nuts. Um Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, so like the manic like I'm going to like get a sign and you know, like wear a you know, uh 
placard on my front that says like doom is nigh the noldor are going to kill us all um uh is uh yeah i have to admit alan i i see your objection i don't i don't understand how it's implausible like they're spying they're spying and they they they're spying on the noldor and they heard to like they have every opportunity the noldor are not going to never talk about it among themselves right um i mean that's going to happen. It's going to come up. Like what happened with them back in Valinor is going to come up um, among themselves without any of the Sindar there. And if Thorin Grethel is spying, there's no reason that she can't hear it. Um, no, Ellen, we did. I think you missed that episode. We showed them spying back in episode four. Um, that was that happened already. Um, we did that. That was uh, one of the like a climb. That was like the climax of episode four. So we're we're all prepared on that. Um yeah. Okay. So uh, Nick is asking his provocative question a different way. So instead of standing up on a plinth and yelling like a crazy person, um, if one of them were to act like one of the Noldor and just straight up describing the kinslaying, wouldn't that work? Um, uh, uh, our model here. Yeah, Aslan's Compass says the kinslaying is so completely outside their comprehension um, that like there might there might be the same problem. Like, sh- surely, like this must be like a horrible joke. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, Nick, I I, I agree. I, I I know you're not like suggesting these things, but wanting to anticipate. To anticipate the poking of holes, as you say, that's 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 a good way to think about it. We have one obvious textual model, right, for this kind of thing. None of the Marathad are that, of course, uh, but of course, I'm thinking of the discussions of the uh, the emissary of the enemy who smuggled himself into the uh, the Adine discussions, right. Um, and there. The emissary does use open argument, saying like the elves are lying. There is no darkness in the north. Uh, you know the the um, the elves themselves are the problem. They're just trying to you know they're 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 um, trying to deceive you. That kind of thing is would that sort of approach work? Somebody coming in and. Um, the, the direct parallel there, if we wanted to do a direct parallel to that incident, um, the direct parallel would be Sauron disguises himself as one of the Sindar and urges the rest of the Sindar to reject the Noldor because he, you know, he is discovered in a way that he maybe doesn't explain the truth, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, good as Maria is reminding us, like they don't know everything. Like they don't know all of the details because you know we didn't have Thuring Gwethel overhearing a one of those as you know conversations, right? Where uh, the Noldor spill the beans explicitly and in detail uh, about the entire story. Um, she's overheard enough to know the gist of what happened, right? She knows that there was blood. She knows that there was bloodshed. She knows that the Noldor shed it. She knows that 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 Teleri blood was shed. Um, and from there, knowing what they know about Fanor and everything, then uh, Sauron can begin to guess the rest. He might not know everything yet, but um, um, 
but he 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 knows enough to know. Um, so that would be a good reason why they're not just doing an expose here, right? Why they're not trying any kind of shock tactics, because they also, that is, they Sauron and Thurin Gwethil are also still pumping for information, right? They are that what their goal here is to. Yes, they want to arouse suspicions among the Sindar. They have discovered that there is a secret, and they know it's it's bad. They know that it is a crime committed by the Noldor, and that the Noldor are concealing it. That's what they know, right? So their best move here is to just make the Sindar suspicious, so that the Sindar dig themselves. And they also... Sauron and Thorin Gwethel are also going to dig as well, trying to trip up the Noldor, trying to get a, one of the Noldo to say something, um, yeah, a, a Noldo to say something, uh, uh, you know, revealing, right? Especially something that is going to get the rest of the Sindar to be, um, you know, pursuing uh, more questions and things like that. Um, yeah. Um, that would explain this. If if their information is still relatively limited and they're working off of speculation, that would certainly explain why they're not coming out and um, giving an impassioned, like, let me tell you the truth about our neighbors uh, in the form of a Sindar, like, like Amlach did uh, at that meeting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so there they would be just spreading rumors, right? They would be saying, um, you know, things like, I, you know, my cousin told me that he heard one of the Noldo talking to another one and saying that, like, there, as if there was some crime that they'd committed or whatever. Um, yeah. One of the outcomes... So, Hakan, thinking about Kyrdin's role here, Kyrdin's role is difficult because on the one hand, uh, his inquiry is very honest and, of course, in a sense, very right. Um, but he's also taking the bait, Sauron's bait, right? Um, there is a sense in which there is, from one way of looking at it, Kyrdin is Sauron's tool throughout this business, right? The more... Kyrdin pushes to discover the truth, the better Sauron is pleased. And I would think that it wouldn't be too long, probably not here in episode five, but by episode six, Sauron and Thorin Gwethel should have fixed upon Kyrdin as their best hope for discord among the elves of Beleriand, right? He's onto it, right? Let's encourage that. Um, this doesn't mean make Kyrdin a bad guy or his inquiries wrong. Um, it just means that in doing what he's doing for very good reasons, he is... Um, in fact, doing the work of, uh, the work of Sauron. Um, yeah, Maria suggesting questions. Do you really think the Valar sent the Noldor? Why do you think the Noldor won't talk about what happened when they came? Is it, is it just grief or, or, or do you think they're hiding something? Yeah, those, those are the kinds of questions that you could see them, uh, asking. Um, Yeah. Yeah, uh, good. And Nick points out one can see their frustration uh, when the Sindar seem to be oblivious to the obviously suspicious behavior. Yeah, there should be certain examples of total failure 
to 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 make any traction right with uh uh with with the sindar there um yeah yeah um good exactly as nick says at every turn the sindar should be resistant to thinking badly of their new friends absolutely absolutely they they should be actively not only is the kinslaying completely outside their worldview? Like they literally cannot imagine such a thing like that happening. Um, they they also they they very actively want to believe in the Noldor. They're going to take a lot of convincing. So earlier we had suggested something like a crisis arising. Um, Sauron and Thorin Gwethel trying to push things to a to a real crisis. Um, that there be a real risk that things were actually going to get ugly, that something bad was going to happen there at the Marathadothad, and the suggestion when we back when we were talking about Luthien before, we were suggesting that maybe Luthien calms things down. We get Luthien singing and dancing and she diffuses what Sauron is doing. Um, Here's the thing. And I don't know how to depict this exactly. No, I do know how. I think the only way we can depict depict this musically through the score, right? If Mm. we can show through the score, Sauron is not just spreading rumors. He is spreading rumors. He's not just spreading rumors. He is also putting forth his power. Right, he is putting forth his powers to influence uh, and bring the Sindar to certain to certain and the Noldor in certain other ways. Right, he is cre- trying to create a spirit of discord here. Um, that is what Luthien is going to completely defuse. Right, um, Yes, Nick, exactly. The the power that is in the ring of power, Sauron has it. It's not in the ring yet, but he's it's always it was always his power, right? Um his power to dominate the wills of o- the will of others um is uh, is one of his signature powers, right? Um Oh, that's really interesting. Nick says uh the stuff we were talking about before gives Sauron the opportunity for a moment of insight. He explains to Thorin Gwethel what the audience must be asking. Uh, that is, why don't they get suspicious? Like, what's wrong? Why is this not working? Um, because Sauron has not yet come to the point where he cannot comprehend good. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and maybe that's when he sort of decides... Um, um, decides that he's going to have to work on the wills of the, he needs to work on and corrupt the wills of the Sindar if he's going to get anywhere. Right. So maybe the first half is, um, I get, we, we see it sort of failing, right? Then what does he do? Does he sing? Do we, do we do we need sound to do a musical number? Does he sing or play an instrument? Which would be innocent enough. There'd be lots of that kind of thing going on. We could have, as we discussed, people taking turns telling stories and singing songs. What if we had, um, 
what if we had like, you know, a Maglor number uh, and well, maybe not Dairon yet. Maybe we had Maglor playing at the beginning uh, and then Sauron in fake Sindarin guise um, takes up, you know, the instrument, whatever instrument we decide we want it to be. Um, and we have him uh, play music, right? And influencing people that way. Marie reminds us that we did have him show his power through singing when Mithros was captured, so having him use music as a weapon here would make sense. Um, uh, I wasn't exactly thinking the devil went down to Georgia, uh, Nick, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, uh, see what I'm, what I was thinking of though, is he takes the instrument and he starts to sing and, and in the background, right? He's not the center of attention at all. Right. Um, discussions and things are happening and they're not even aware of, but then here's like the audience. We, we would show Sauron right off on the side, beginning to play. Um, and the music changes, right. And we get, uh, we get the, 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 we would need from Phil, the creepy Sauron spreading discord, like corrupting the wills of the Sindar and uh, spreading discord theme, right. That that Sauron would, would begin to play. Um, and um, yeah, exactly, Marie. He would have to be one of the one of the one of the Sindar. He would have to be disguised as as a as a Sindar in order to do this. Okay, so here he is. He's playing, and then we can sh- so we we then show the effect that it has on the people, right? Um, and how would it manifest itself? What kind of warning signs would we see? Somebody would get alarmed, right? Um, what would happen to people? They would, um, um, and maybe we, the theme would have to be careful because it can't be too evil, right? It has to be insidious. Um, he can't like, you know, pick up a lute and start playing and everybody be like, all right, who's play- like, who's that guy playing the evil music? Like, you know, that's good. Uh, yeah, it would. The music thing would have to be really, really subtle. So, yeah, things like an argument breaking out, Marie, definitely. Um, uh, small things at first. Right. That would show like. Uh, you know, unease, uh, and it, and then so finally we get like an argument, um, uh, maybe even an actual fight uh, uh, somewhere kind of breaks out. Luthien sees it, uh, and she, um, uh, yeah, good. Ellen is imagining uh, one of the Feanorians. Uh, making a making an arrogant and disparaging remark uh, about the Sindar. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing I would expect to happen under the influence of of uh, of Sauron's music. Luthien then breaks in, right, and she breaks in by singing, and she's singing, and her singing cuts across Sauron's music, and Sauron's music dies, right, and she sings, and after she sings, then Dairon starts playing to accompany her, right. So first, it's just her singing. 
Um, and, you know, I'm imagining this like sort of space opening around her. In fact, it would be really kind of fun uh, that that would be a really kind of fun uh, visual reminder of the girdle of Melian, right? Just as Melian steps out and the spiders go right in the in 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 season three, um, the um, to have her step into the middle of the room where everyone is like talking with increasing unease and uh, and discord, um, and she begins singing. And when she begins singing, you know, this space opens up around her as everybody kind of backs off. Uh, and, uh, and she, and then, you know, Dairon steps forward and he accompany, he begins to accompany her and then she begins to dance and, um, Ooh, yeah. Nice Nick. Right. And then after, so first you have Luthien singing by herself and then Dairon begins to accompany her and then Maglor comes in and joins the two of them. Right. So we have Maglor, Dairon and Luthien all singing at the same time. And that absolutely, um, uh, and then, you know, we look around and Sauron is gone. Right. Uh, you know, he's just he's 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 just left the building uh, at that point and nobody saw him leave. Um, yeah. Yeah, that works. I love that. I love that. Um, so, you know, we got to be careful. We can't be too over the top and hokey about the, you know, the conversations and the discord and everything else. But but I think that 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 progression makes some sense to me, that progression to say, um we're going to first just try spreading rumors. It's not going to work. We're going to, we're going to be able to show to the audience that like they are really resistant to thinking ill of, uh, of each other. Right. Um, to show how far this is outside, uh, their, um, their, their normal worldview. And then Sauron saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go at it, uh, direct, you know, more directly. Um, and then Luthien, with her moment. Um, okay. Yeah. Good. Like it. I like it. I think that that, uh, um, that works, that works really well. Um, there can be some people who don't really pick up on what happened, right. Who don't really fully understand that there will be some who will guess if they don't guess that it was Sauron personally, they will know, um, Something just happened there, right? You know, we need to be on our guard. Um, who would be most sensitive to that? Which of the elves would be most sensitive to the fact that that had happened? Um, yeah, ooh, Finrod, yeah. Yeah, Finrod. Um, ooh, Mythros, Hakon suggests... Yes. Yes. I don't know. Mythros knows the power of Sauron singing. Who better? Um, yeah, exactly, Murray. That's what I was just thinking, too. I like, you know, Finrod being the thing. Um, yeah. But, yeah, Mythros... Mythros is the one who's felt it before. Um... I'm kind of imagining Mythros having like a PTSD reaction, actually. Uh, you know, maybe Mythros like doesn't talk about it, but yeah, he's... Uh, yeah, me too. He, he's kind of looking like Aragorn in, in, in the Init Bree when talking about the ring rates, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, Nick, having Mythros and Fingen in a conversation, right? We cut to a conversation, like... Fingen and Mothers were standing together when this happens. 
and we, uh, um, yeah, yeah, they have different reactions and re- realize it for different reasons. But yeah, yeah, no, that could work. I like that. Okay. Meanwhile, we have romance. So the, <laughs> the two, the two romantic, we have two romantic connections uh, being made here. Uh, a simple, a simpler one and a more complex one. The simple one is Oradreth and Meryl. Uh, so Oradreth the Noldo needs to meet his Cinderin uh, 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 wife here at the Marathotterthod, uh, and that's simple enough because they're. Um, not major characters, um, you know, and their relationship is not a complex one within our story here. Um, so that's easy enough to, 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 we don't even have to give them dialogue. We don't need, we, we, in fact, please, let's not have cheesy dialogue uh, between Oradreth and Meryl. Uh, we could just show them dancing, right? We show them dancing and, you know, smooching or whatever it is that elves do. And, uh, you know, like, the, so like them just being happy in the middle of, uh, uh, of the, you know, dance floor or whatever is fine. Right. Um, yeah. I think, I think keeping it, keeping it subtle was a good idea. Yeah. Not, yeah. So we just see them being, being happy together and we'll like, okay, that we, that we don't actually have to, you know, don't get, get married here. We'll just find out later that they're married. Right. So, but, but we introduce them and they, of course, therefore the role that they, that the two of them play in this episode, they are like the, the the representatives, right? They're like the symbol of the union between the Noldor and the Sindar, right? You know, as the like a, they embody the uh, you know benevolent coming together of Noldor and Sindar that is being celebrated here in this moment. So them falling in love together is like a personification of the joining together of the two cultures. That's all really good. Galadriel and Celeborn, obviously are in a different situation and there should be no smooching or whatever it is that elves do uh, between Galadriel and Celeborn, because of course this is a sad moment the, the the moment that we had contemplated here. And if we're good, this can be played off of some really, uh, this can be played off in really interesting ways. Um, the uh, rumor attempts and things that Sauron and Thor and Gwethel are doing. So all the while that Sauron and Thor and Gwethel armed with some, though not all knowledge that there is a, you know, of the secret of the Noldor are trying to make people suspicious and spread discord on that premise. At the same time, somewhere else we have one of the Noldor actually making a full confession to one of the Sindar, right? In Goadriel confessing to Celeborn uh, about her mother's death and the kinslaying. Um, and to have that be the counterpoint, right? We have on the one hand, like the party where there's like lots of, you know, people don't really know anything of the true story and attempts to make them suspicious, which are largely failing. Um, but you have the real sort of joining the real, uh, forgiveness happening off screen or not off screen, but off stage, off of that main stage, off on the side. Um, Galadriel, I think, leaves the party, and she's got to leave the party fairly early on. Like, we establish the party at the beginning, and we certainly show Oradreth and Meryl being super happy and lovey together from the beginning um, during Maglor's piece, right? Um, And then uh, uh, they... um, she heads off to the side. Right. Exactly. It is a weeks long party, Marie, as we discussed. Uh, but I just mean, as far as our episode is concerned. Um, so, um, uh, 
Yeah. Um. Ooh, wait, Nick. Who's were you suggesting be the argument that breaks out during Sauron's music? Which 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 couple were you suggesting argue during the music? Um. Oh, or Adreth and Merrill, right? Having them uh, have a falling out or have yeah, yeah. Okay, that would be interesting. I'm not sure. Uh. You know. And I guess they could do that and have a smoochy, you know, uh, 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 reconciliation afterwards or something. Uh, I don't know. That might be too many for me. I'm not sure. But anyway, Goadriel. So Goadriel leaves, right? While the party is still happy and Sauron is still failing to make any traction, Goadriel leaves. And um, Celeborn sees her leave and follows her. And so they have their uh, private conversation. Um, he would show her that he is aware there would be some kind of we've shown Galadriel having conversation with Melian right and refusing to tell Melian any more than um, you know a certain few things Celeborn like Melian would be able to tell that you know, there is something that she is not telling. It would, you know, say the darkness and the grief behind her. Um, she would begin by um, talking about her mother's death uh, and her grief for that. And I would think that she would do that because she she would appreciate Celeborn's kindness and pity for her, uh, for her suffering, Um but at the same time, I think she would be hoping to avoid the full confession, right? So she would tell him about her mother's death and um, hope that he would leave it at that. But he doesn't leave it at that, right? Because he is wise. He is very wise, uh, as Galadriel is going to insist in the Fellowship of the Ring. And uh, he sees past that, right? And, he's, you know, and, and so he would say something like, yeah, no, like I, I get you, right? Like, yeah, you're sad about your mom. I see that, but that's not it, right? It's this, you know, what you are feeling is more than grief. Um, and then she, um, uh, she opens up and admits about the kinslaying. When she does that, I think she doesn't ask Celeborn to keep it a secret. But he tells her, like, so it's his idea to tell her that he's not going to tell anybody else. Um, because he wants to show her that he's not going to try to profit off of this information. That he, that even though it is obviously important, um, he's not even going to tell Thingle about it. Because he respects her grief and her privacy and that this is not... Um, um, yeah, see... I uh, I don't... I mean, it makes sense in a couple ways for her to want to protect the rest of the Noldor and not mess things up, but I don't want her begging him to keep it a secret. Um, she would want that, but I don't think she would ask for that. I don't think she would beg for that. And I think that he would perceive that she wants that, and he would volunteer that, showing that he understands her and that he respects her and that this is her secret, not his. Um, but yeah, I just, 
I don't think that Galadriel should say, please don't tell anybody, right? That doesn't feel like Galadriel to me. She should be too proud for that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, she won't, yeah, no, no. Not beg, not command, no. Just, um... I mean, we could have her thinking, like, do I have to kill this guy now? <laughs> right? Uh, but um, but anyway, it doesn't matter because it doesn't come to that, right? Before, you know, while she is still being silent, thinking through, like, the implications of her honesty, right? Um, he, uh, um he recovers Marie exactly from his shock because he's going to have a hard time processing this. Um, and, and then he recognizes that she does, that she does need this. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think Galadriel needs to tell someone about this. She needs to. The way that this is, you know, Goadriel's guilt. She is guilty. She has blood on herself. And you'll remember we had these. I wanted her to actually kill folks uh, back in season three. And you guys didn't want to have her actually killing folks, which is fine. I concede that. Um, but I did at least want blood splattered on her, if not uh, actually on, if not on her hands. Um, but she's, she's guilty. Right. She has guilt. She feels guilt. She was involved. She made the choice uh, to support the Noldor. She was attacking. She didn't attack yet. She didn't kill anybody, um, but she was running to attack the uh, the 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 Teleri um, before her mom died. Um, and. She needs to she she needs he perceives, as we've said before, he perceives that she needs to forgive herself. Um, and he can say that. I think that he can, he can get to that place. Not that she doesn't do it yet. Right. Um, but, uh, I think we can even get, bring him to a place where he, he sees like, you know, you, you need, you need to, uh, you need to forgive yourself. Um, So yes, her admitting this, in admitting this, she is making herself vulnerable. And this is potentially a massive breach of Noldorin policy. Um, I think that she has the guts to do that. Um, I think that... But there's no question that she is putting herself in his power by doing this. Um and yeah, exactly. She is trusting him implicit, trusting him implicitly. She doesn't swear him to secrecy first. She doesn't beg for secrecy or command secrecy afterwards. Um, the trust, the vulnerability, and the trust has to be implicit, but strong. Um, we had them interacting. When was it? Episode three. Episode four. One of the reasons I wanted to get Goadriel to to Doriath earlier rather than later 
was to give her more time so that we can give her a couple scenes with Celeborn um, to convey to the audience that they've had a chance to get to know each other. Um, yeah, episode three, we showed that. So it's been a while now. So t- much time has passed. We are conveying that much time has passed since we already saw them interacting. So this is not like their first conversation and she's trusting a stranger by any stretch. Um, okay, I like that. I think that's enough to to work with there. Um, maybe we should uh, move on to episode six. How about that? Um, oh, you're a party pooper. I know. I know. Enough of the party. Okay. Um, good, right. We saw them having a, their first conversation in, in episode one, the meeting again in Doriath in episode three. Yeah, good. We've, we've laid, I think, plenty of groundwork uh, for them to... for us to be able to believe that they have, uh, uh, you know, a good relationship by this point. Um, yeah, good, good. Yeah. Hakan, I agree. It's important that there's no manipulation going on on either side, right? This is, this is vulnerable honesty on her part. And this is, um, you know, just sort of like sincere concern for her on his part. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Episode six. This is much simpler, so no problem. Episode six. We have Kierden, if not at the center of this whole episode, then certainly Kierden, uh, uh very uh, involved with this. In fact, we could have Kierden as the central figure, I think, of this episode, perhaps. Um, uh, yeah. I had almost forgotten... We had Thorin Gwethel as the central figure of the entire episode four, didn't we? I love that idea still. My goodness, that was a fantastic idea. Um, We're genius. We're just genius. Yeah, absolutely genius. Um, So, okay. Um, If we have the focal point on Kirden, so Kirden has gone home from the Marathadr thought, very thoughtful, right? And he's thinking about a couple different... So on the one hand, he is going to be aware of the fact... That, again, thinking about what I was already describing with Kirden, how he is going to, in, a, in essence, be the tool of Sauron while not doing anything wrong, um, he can be reflecting on what happened, uh, like with the whole Sauron and Luthien incident, right? Um, be reflecting. So when he thinks back to the things that he heard and the questions that were being asked, like, of course, by Sauron and Thorin Gwethel in disguise, when he reflects on that, um, uh, he um, he realizes there is there is there is something like and uh, in a sense like we can hear him sort of echoing Kelleborn's thoughts towards Galadriel, right? But in a different tone and in a different context, there is more here than grief, right? Yes, there is something uh, dark. There is there is something in the past of the Noldor that they haven't spoken of, but it's not just grief. Um, they are not just the victims of tragedy. There is, there is something else there. Um, and he might reflect upon the incident, right? Uh, the music and Luthien's diffusing it. Right. Um, and think, so he might even have the thought, these questions were begun in malice. But he can't let them go because there's something to them. Like malice may be behind it, but there's truth here 
and this is a truth that even if it is a even if it is an unhappy truth, it is a truth that Thingol needs to know. So he is going to uh, uh, begin actively trying to ferret this out. Um, how? How does he do that? We have him learning that Feanor burned the ships. Okay, how? What's Kierden's information? If Kierden is going to make up his mind to uh, try to figure out the information, how's he going to do that? By interrogating Noldor himself? By sending out some of his people to interrogate Noldor and report back to him? Um, he's not going to send folks to spy. He wouldn't do that. So what would he do? I wouldn't think he would send out underlings to go interrogate Nolder and underlings and report back to him. If he had questions about this, he'd ask. Right? Um, he'd ask. So, okay. So, Marie, I think, yeah, Marie points out that Sauron knows that Feanor burned the ships. Um, so, um, the news, that news could come through Sauron. Yeah. I think Sauron has to become actively complicit in this. So, one of the take-homes, right, um, from uh, so I'm I'm thinking of, so uh, you know what does Sauron and Thorin Gwethel's debrief look like at the end of the Marathoder thought right they're like okay right great on the one hand that spreading rumors thing was disappointingly unsuccessful right uh, we're gonna have an uphill battle here in trying to like you know now, now we see what we're up against right this is gonna be harder than we think but we're still up to it. Um, and uh, that, like, direct attempt to manipulate their wills kind of didn't pan out. So, you know, but, uh, so they're going to say we, we're going to have adopt a new strategy, right? Um, and the new strategy they're going to adopt is they're going to say, okay, that, that attempt to manipulate the wills of masses of the elves all at once, um, which he did at the party, that didn't work. Let's in, let's, we need to isolate them. Right. So let's start the catch and release program. Let's capture individual elves and break their wills privately. Right. We'll take them back to Angband. We'll break their wills and we'll use them as our tools. If we can use that's going to be the best way long term for us to undermine the sublime confidence that the Teleri have. Excuse me, Sindar. Same basic thing that the Sindar have in the Noldor. Right. Um, And uh, but we need more. We need more tools. So as he's doing this also, he's going to hear about Círdan, right? Going to know that Círdan is, is it, you know, maybe Thorin Gwethel notices this. Maybe Thorin Gwethel reports she noticed, like, Círdan was the one who, through the whole thing, was looking most, uh, maybe she has a conversation, maybe we should, yeah, yeah. So let's show, during the Marathadathad, uh, Thurin Gwethil, in disguise, has a conversation with Círdan. And Círdan is the only one who seems to, like, be interested Right. Uh, Kierden is the only one who is not like, oh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He's at least curious or seems troubled. And so she can report that to Sauron like, hey, you know, 
Kirden, he seemed troubled, and he's really close to Thingol, so this would be a good way, right? Let's let's work on that. So Sauron says, okay, great, Thoringuethel. You and I, let's divide forces, right? I am going to work on the catch and release. So I'm going to get Tevildo to help. Tevildo, of course, is going to be the one who's going to do the catching, right? He's the, they're the, the cats are the stealth ninjas, right? So he's going to go and... Um, <laughs> Hakan says, yeah, exactly. Thorin Grethel's going to be like, hey, there was this bearded guy. Yeah, he was the one. Um, uh, su- suspicious, you know, uh, a suspicious character correlates with facial hair. Um, anyway, so Sauron is going to send Tevildo out, and Tevildo is going to capture uh, some elves for him and bring him back and help him torture him and stuff. So he's going to be focusing on breaking them. And meanwhile, Thorin Grethel, go to the Havens, right, and uh, disguise yourself and uh, start working on Círdan. So Thurin Gwethel comes to Círdan, and she, what? She's going to pretend that she is, uh, who's she going to pretend to be? She could pretend to be a Noldo. She could pretend to be a Noldo. But anyway, through her, Círdan learns the truth about the burning of the ships, right? So she'd have to be pretending that she learned... Now, if she were pretending to be a, a Cinda, then she would be able to say, like, hey, I, I learned, I found out this truth. Um, probably easier for her to pretend to be a Cinda from far away, right? And she comes in and she's like, uh, hey, I was nearby, I was on the coast here. How, how is she going to claim to figure it out? What's her evidence? She was talking to Winola, right? Um uh, she was like, yeah, at the party, one of the, like, Feanorians got drunk, right? And, um, um, and we're gonna, uh, we're gonna, uh, and he, like, spilled the beans that those ships weren't burned by orcs, right? They were burned by Feanor. Feanor set fire to the ships. And Círdan is gonna be like, mind blown, right? And But of course, Kierden accepts it because Kierden is like, that's the explanation! Like, I've been coming up with all these cockamamie theories about how those ships got burned. Nothing made sense! This makes sense! Right? He will recognize that it is true, that it fits the data. Um, absolutely. Um, so, sure. Great. Okay. So, um, Ah, interesting. So Maria's thinking if she's a fake Noldo, then she can be reluctant to disclose but still tell him, and it can be about how the Feanorians aren't trusted by the other Noldo. She would pretend, if she were to be a fake Noldo, she would be not a fake Feanorian. She would be a fake, uh, like, one of, probably one of Fingen and Fingolfin's folks from the far north, maybe, right? Um, so she would talk about like the Helcaraxa. She would express some of the genuine anger still residing within, you know, uh, some of them uh, about the Feanorians. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, Ellen, we're getting the Kirtan learning about the Kinsling, which is being gentle about it. We need, we need to build up to that, right? We still got some time. Um, remind me, uh, guys, which episode do we have the Kirtan revealing the truth to Thingol? Is that seven or is it eight? It's episode seven, right? Yeah. So he's he's gonna. So does that mean he's gonna get there by the end of this episode? That in so, Kierden begins episode six uneasy, and he ends episode six in full command of the facts. Or do we have that happen at the beginning of episode seven? And so, episode seven begins when Kierden 
uh, like Kyrdin gets the final piece of information and then culminates with him bringing it to Thingol by the end of the episode. Um, I think you end six with forgetting the information. Okay. It seems like. So then how does yeah, he get it? Right. How does he get it then? Hmm. I like the finding out the truth about the burning of the ships because we already have him suspicious. We've built that up. We've built up his uneasiness and uncertainty about what the heck happened. Like the, his forensic study of the, of the, of the, the, the burned ships and his assumption initially that it must've been orcs, but then doubts about that. Right. And like, it doesn't really seem to fit the data. Now he gets, okay, Feanor burned the ships, and this is going to open a whole bunch of things for him. Because So let's, let's think of his, his progression here, right? Feanor burned the ships. That fits the facts. Like, that rings true to him right away. If Feanor burned the ships and the, the, the rest of the Noldor, he betrayed the rest of the Noldor, that could explain the darkness, right? This resentment, this internal fighting among the Noldor, this crime of one part of the Noldor to the other, this betrayal... That maybe that's enough to explain it, right? Maybe that's okay. But then here's then the next step in the chain, though. He is a Kirden the ship, right? Right? Nobody would be more sensitive than Kirden to what the Teleri ships meant to the Teleri, right? right? The right. significance of those ships that Feanor set fire to the greatest ships ever constructed and ever will be constructed, right? And so he will be therefore the first of all of the Sindar to say to have it enter into his worldview like holy cow they they the Noldor are really capable of atrocities right not only should we not trust them blindly we should be suspicious because if Feanor could do that if he could set fire to those ships not just ships those ships what else wouldn't he do and then of course how did he get those ships the Teleri obviously didn't ferry him if he set fire to them, right? Um, and so he could just logically come to the conclusion based on that evidence to say how he treated the ships, his burning of the ships shows that he did not have rightful ownership of those ships. Those, they were not lent to him in good faith, or if so, he betrayed it, right? A horrible betrayal has happened. Either the Teleri brought them over in their ships and were killed, because certainly the Teleri would have been killed before they allowed those ships to be burned, or else he killed them first and stole the ships and brought them over. Like, the concept is, um, has got to, can, can all grow upon him um, uh, as he is thinking through the implications of the burning of the ships, right? I, I kind of like the idea that the entire story is kind of embedded in that one fact, um, mm-hmm. that the whole thing really becomes clear to him, like what must have happened, or at least the kind of thing um, that um, that must have happened begins once he gets that one fact, once he perceives that one fact. Because when one of the things that I really like about it is the kind of emphasis that it places. I've always said, of course, that the, I think the burning of the ships is a major turning point uh, mm-hmm. in, 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 in one sense, uh, potentially even more significant than the kinslaying itself. Um, it's the thing that really shows that he's beyond the edge. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Especially... Especially, um, especially if if um, Sauron and Thorin Grethel play a role in him finding it out, mm-hmm. 
All they have to do mm-hmm. is tell them something that's true. Yes. All they yeah, have to do is tell one, them something that's true. That's yeah. yeah, one very simple, small fact. And, yep. and, and that unravels things like that. That's a, that's always, that's always great. They don't have to lie. They don't have to do anything nefarious other than tell him something that probably he should know. Yes. Yes, exactly. The thing is here, one of the difficulties of the kind of, uh, you know, we don't have much time. Uh, you know, these episodes are short and ideally we would like to have, a large period of time pass. And during that time, during the, you know, I don't know what, centuries in which, or maybe it's decades at least, in which the Sindar and the Noldor are living together, like, slow unease begins to grow among the Sindar as the Noldor continue not to share with them. Like, it's clear they're still concealing something and it's pri- and they begin to suspect that it's more than just grief. And so organic rumors begin to grow among the Sindar themselves. That's how I, I, I can easily imagine it happening that way. I don't think we have time for that. Um, I think that that kind of really like slow recognition over time is not something that we can dramatize very effectively. Um, especially since, I mean, as we were talking about here, having Kierden, you know, sort of following up right away. I mean, because if, if he doesn't, if that has happened, then we have to have Kierden having been uneasy at the Marathadothad and now being like, decades have happened and I haven't looked into this. Um, so anyway, I think that um, I like this this idea of Kierden having this epiphany, right? Because, um, of course, wait, then there's one more step to his logic, right? This, the Feanor and his people must have done something terrible. I mean, they did something terrible to the Teleri. They burned their ships, right? That's an established fact. They must have done something else. There may even have been bloodshed, right? They might have actually killed the Teleri in order to take the ships. Then mm-hmm. the one last link in his logic chain. What about the rest of the Noldor? And then he would think really? about it and say, what lies behind their grief is not just anger. It's not just betrayal. It's guilt. They were involved, too. They were betrayed by Feanor, but they were also involved. Like, I, I, I would think that he'd be able to see that, that he'd be able to put that together. Um, and, um, yes. Yes, so he still doesn't know what happened exactly, right? Because he's not received an account. None of the Noldor have spilled the beans to him. And I kind of like it if Kierden... We would have to have had Kierden corner one of our named Noldo, Noldor, right? I mean, he would have to come to, to, to a Noldo and be, you know, somebody, Turgon or somebody, and be like, or Finrod, probably, and be like, okay, buddy, tell me the truth, Right? You know, and he, you know, he'd be getting like the, you know, the the, the overhead lamp and everything out, right, to interrogate <laughs> Finrod or something. Um, I don't like that scene. I don't want that scene to happen. Um, no. Better if he works it out. So he's very confident, and he's almost right, right. He's almost exactly right. He doesn't have all the details. He doesn't know for sure how the the people of Fingolfin were involved, but he, but he, he so. The ships were definitely burned. There was almost certainly violence because this, that could not have, violence had to have been done to to the Teleri in order for that situation to arise. 
So clearly violence was done and the other Noldor have been betrayed, but they're also guilty. That's enough. He goes to Thingol. He's going to, so next episode, he goes to Thingol with that, right? Then Thingol can be the one who draws the further. So Thingol hears this and he's like, oh, okay. So every single one of these Noldor, so that, that, that all of the Noldor have come to Middle Earth red handed with the blood of the Teleri, right? That is Thingol's conclusion, right? And so that's what he's going to accost, um, uh, uh, you know, Finrod and Angrod with um, is that, you know, he's, he's going to accuse them and assume that they're... So they then clarify. Uh, but Thingol is the one who kind of thinks the worst. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think... Um, uh, I think... Because Thingol is also going to know, I mean, and, and he and Melian have talked, right, about what she saw in Goadriel. Um, so it's going to fit his... Uh, that is, it's going to fit uh, uh, Thingol's theories as well. Okay, well, let's not get too far into episode six stuff. That's that's uh, next episode. But but I think that this all... that was good. I, this is a puzzle I've, I've been having a hard time with. Like, how did Kyrdin find out exactly? Or how are we going to show him finding out without having him, as I say, like, you know, waterboarding Finrod uh, in order to figure it out? So, um, good. good. I like okay. him puzzling it together from this fact. Yeah. And I think... And I think we can, uh, I think we can overlay, his, like him sort of, like the way we can portray him figuring it out mm-hmm. once he once he's learned this fact is we can overlay um, shots and scenes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Either, either flashbacks to events or or even just or even you know shots even of contemporaneous events, but events that would be that 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 for the the viewers who already know it happened would show them make it obvious that he's putting it together. Yes. I mean, yes. You, yeah, you could show contemporaries like, you know, he's thinking and there's a shot of one of Fan or Sons like looking over at him concerned or I don't know, you know, something like there's other people in the crowd that may be uh-huh. Uh-huh. getting nervous. Right. Right. Yes. He, he can remember back to the Marathoder thought and put some things together, some right. guilty expressions and, uh, you know, right. exchanged glances and things between Sons of Fan or whatever. Um, yes. Yes. What if all of this happens in conversation with Thurin Gwethel in disguise so that it is to Thurin Gwethel himself that he is verbally kind of spilling out his theory and his chain of reasoning, right? And Thurin Gwethel is there like, yes, yes, <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and she prompts him on, exactly, Ellen. And, uh, and you know, maybe... To, Maybe she didn't even see it really clearly. Again, like they don't know all the details, right? That's they just true. know that the Noldor are guilty, and they know that the Nold that that the Noldor are that the, the Noldor have good reason to try to keep this guilt from the Teleri. That's what they know. They're just trying to stir the pot, right? Meanwhile, and the thing that's the thing that's like extra insidious about that is that she doesn't have to tell many lies. Right. Exactly. She doesn't have to lie to him even once. Yes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and then she comes back to Sauron. Meanwhile, Sauron has been waterboarding Noldor, so he uh, also has figured out what's going on um, uh, more exactly. Um, what do we show Sauron doing? I'm joking about the waterboarding. What do we show Sauron doing uh, <laughs> with the elves that he has captured? He's, his goal is to, to break their wills, right? He wants to be able to use them as... 
uh, as spies, he wants them to be reporting back to him. He wants to be able to plant stories directly uh, uh, using them um, uh, to undermine things. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Tavildo is the master torturer. Um, yeah. No, Ellen, I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say we necessarily have to show torture on screen. I actually think that torture done off screen, by which I don't mean like screams coming from the next room. I just mean like when we know it, it is going to happen or we know it has happened. It is so I find that so much more effective than actually showing showing somebody screaming uh, on screen um, uh, personally. But anyhow. Okay, so he's trying to break their wills. How much success do we show him having? Do we show, are we going to have some of our catch and release elves there present? Are we going to be introducing those here? Or are we going to save that? For episode six, episode seven. I think that episode six should really focus on Kierden and Thorin Gwethel more. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and some of the betrayals are going to be saved until season five. Yeah, the catch and release program is a, is a very longitudinal program uh, on uh, on Sauron's part. Um, right, we were going to have Marie uh, Morgoth coming back with this full spell of bottomless dread uh, to break Elder Latte. Um, yes, we'll get there eventually. Right. Okay, so we have... All we could do is just showing the capture then, right? Um, we could merely establish in episode six the fact that some elves, and perhaps like Elder Latte herself, uh, we can show her captured and brought back to uh, you know brought back to Sauron and you know some kind of like horribly unspeakable implication of like that he plans to do something that we're not going to find out what it is to her um Rog too maybe yeah sure that way we can get yeah sure sure um yeah yeah um yeah good good um yeah, Alan. Not sure I agree with you that we have to establish uh, Anil in Mithrim before he's captured. Um, I mean, we could do that, but I'm not sure that that's necessary. Uh, but I'm not going to worry about that uh, for episode six. Okay, other things in episode six. We also have <laughs> Gothmog doing his own experimentation, trying to get the army in gear. Uh, okay, forcing the orcs to endure sunlight unsuccessfully. I don't want... We have to be careful. Sauron, of course, has not been... His success has not been a, a, a career of um, um, of uninterrupted uh, um, success. You know, Sauron's has not been enjoying uninterrupted success, of course, in his campaigns. Uh, but he's accomplishing some things, clearly, especially in this episode. Um uh, so we don't want Gothmog just to be looking kind of lame and silly by comparison. Um, I love the glimpse of Morgoth busy in Hildorian, right? Like if we just get one scene somewhere, right? Um, 
maybe the opening scene, right? What if the opening scene of episode six is like this, you know, the altar that has been established and Morgoth standing behind it in glory with the eclipse going on and the, the men of Hildorian cowering around him and, um, uh, yeah, exactly. Mortals bowing down on some kind of like, uh, you know, like ziggurat-ish thing or something like that. Um, you know, that um, uh, that would be uh, that would be fun. That would be cool. And if we, don't, we don't have to explain it. Right. We don't have to we don't have to show what it is exactly. We don't have to necessarily connect it to things, but it's a nice ominous beginning. Right. And then from there we cut to Kierden, you know with his thinking cap on and, 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 and being worried. Um, well, they haven't built the final temple yet, Ellen, but uh, anyway, whatever we don't have to get into, we don't have to get into too much with, uh, with, with Hildorian. Um, we just show him, uh, uh, Morgoth having some success over there. Feanorians and the blue mountain dwarves. Okay. Somebody help me Rem- remind me of, I kind of, I feel like w- I had a bunch of ideas for that, and we kind of decided to not do them. So I'm trying to remember which of the Feanorians. With we wanted to establish the tolls, right, and the dwarf trade through, and how Carinthir, uh especially is going to enrich himself. And we wanted to introduce, right, so Kurafin and Carinthir meeting Telkar and establishing the trade route. Okay. All right, so they meet Telkar, and Kurafin gets uh, 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 angrist, right? Um, yes. Okay, right. Karanthir alienates them. They trade with Kurafin instead. Uh, Karanthir throws up a toll booth. Okay, right, so we get some of that stuff going on. Um, I'm thinking about how that works in the economy, in the narrative economy of this episode as a whole. It would be interesting to introduce this in the middle of Kierden's suspicions about the Feanorians, right? He learns the truth about the Feanorians, and he begins to suspect all kinds of dark thoughts about their motivations and what they're trying to do. Meanwhile, here's the Feanorians meeting the dwarves, and... um, you know, sort of exploiting that relationship. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting because we don't even have to make it look sinister, right? We don't have to make it look like they're being evil with the dwarves, but it, it, it creates this air of suspicion on the viewer's part, right? As Kierden is going through his suspicion about um, uh, his suspicion about uh, the the you know, what the dark, the dark motivations of the Feanorians and the, the wicked things that they are willing to do. And then we just show, you know, Kurafin and Karanthir establishing relationships with the dwarves. And we're kind of wondering like, what is Kurafin plotting? And, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. I think that can be, that can be made to work pretty well. Um, See, Ellen, I'm now nervous to suggest Karanthir acting like a jerk because 
you guys all felt I was like overdoing Karin Thier acting like a jerk. <laughs> so I'm now like reluctant to even suggest Karin Thier acting like a jerk. But I'm ready any day of the week for Karin Thier to be acting like a jerk to people. Um, <laughs> that all seems fine to me. Um, explain more about the orcs and the sunlight and how that would work here. Is the goal basically to show that Gothmog is making warlike preparations so that we are um, sort of prepared to set the, you know, we're, we're preparing the audience for the fact that battle is coming before too long. Um, okay. Um, then maybe we just show that. Maybe, uh, you know, um, how about this? How about Gothmog is um, building up his armies, right, indoors. And we need to have someone for him to have a conversation with. Uh, But somebody is talking to Gothmog and basically asks him, like, okay, so how are you planning to deploy these armies of orcs, uh, you know, in the brilliant sunlight here as they're all, you know, they can't do the sunlight thing. Um, Gothmog's response to that, I think, would be just essentially... Bulldog, there you go. Great. We do have Bulldog available, yeah. Uh, And Bulldog, of course, would be personally concerned as he's the sort of demigod of the orcs, right? Um, So um, Bulldog could be expressing some frustration, right? So he and Gothmog are on the same page. They're wanting to build up the army. They're wanting to get out there and, and, like, kill some elves already. This is, like, you know, their... Uh, hobby, uh, end job, right? You know, the orcs, at least, uh, you know, they're doing what they love. So um, they, uh, uh, but their, you know, their career path is currently thwarted by the sun. So they're trying to figure out what to do with that. I think Gothma, I'm, what, what, what I'm building to here is I think that um, Gothmog is confident in Morgoth, basically. Like, he doesn't know. He doesn't have a plan. But he believes that Morgoth is going to take care of it, right? And so he just kind of he just kind of trusts in that. Um, uh, his job, you know, he he so he is sort of just building up the armies, kind of in faith, right? That this is gonna this is gonna work out. I don't see him as the experimental type, uh, exactly. Um, nor do I think like you know orcs doing like a. A, a sunshine training montage is necessarily uh, what we're going to want to go for here either. You know, like what, like elves or the orcs on, uh, you know, indoor tanning beds and stuff to like slowly acclimate them to, you know, ultraviolet radiation. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that we necessarily want to go there. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that he just is, is sort of confident that, you know, his armies will be needed when they are called upon and the opportunity will arise. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. No, and I think that that's, that's enough. Look at that. See how efficient we were with episode six? No problem. <laughs> Not even running late. Not even running late. Er, than usual. So, <laughs> next time... June 7th, as we said, so that is one week from today. We shall return and we'll be discussing more creative content questions. Um, uh, so now keep in mind, we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to stick to the schedule. So we'll be back 
three weeks from next week, right? Um, so we're just shifting the one, two weeks from now up one week. So we'll go Friday, June, se- June 7th. Um, more creative content questions uh, and uh, uh, being told to prepare particularly for the cast list and casting uh, descriptions. We're going to go through uh, some more of the casting. We talked, for instance, about the... Um, uh, about the um, uh, the frame, we talked about some of the you know what we're looking for in cast for the frame, and we're going to be doing a little bit more of that as we go through uh, the rest of the as yet uncasted elves. Uh, so that's what's that's what's going to happen. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, everybody. This was a this was a really fun discussion. I was really happy with our Turgon discussion. Actually, really glad we yeah. started there. Uh, I feel like I've got a handle on Turgon's character a lot, a lot better now. Yeah, yeah, I like the cool. I like the direction heading in. Good, you. good. Both both episodes actually. Yep. Excellent. Very good. Um, well, thanks everybody, and we will um, um, uh, we'll see you guys in one week. Uh, thanks everybody. How exciting! You've been around so fast. Absolutely. Uh, I know. I, I, will, I will say, as always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.